Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. It's Philippians chapter 1 today, verses 27 down through 30. If you'd like to take notes, the title of my sermon this morning is The Stance of a Citizen. The Stance of a of a citizen. I'm going to be reading out of New King James here, Philippians chapter 1. The verses will be up on the screen. Let's look together. Philippians 1, verse 27 through 30. Paul writes, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So this is God's word to which we say, thanks be to God. Uh, Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of your word this morning. We pray that each and every morning. We don't want to do that religiously. What an opportunity to open up our eyes, open up our Bibles, and behold you, God. And so that's why we're here, to see you, to hear from you, because we need to. God, distraction is our default. But we're thankful for your spirit. We're thankful for the rhythms and the practices like Sunday morning church where we can be here creating space for your spirit. And and so, God, as we do that, we ask that there would be space also made in our hearts. May we be open and available to what you want to say, what you want to do, God, and where you want to take us. So God, as I do every week, I just invite you to speak to us. This is your time. We're here to hear from you. We pray that you'd speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want us to start this morning by doing our best with our imagination to place ourselves in Paul's shoes, or as it's been said in VBS, in Paul's sandals. Or maybe we could say in Paul's cell. Let's put ourselves in Paul's situation for a moment. Imagine that you have been imprisoned for your boldness to Jesus and for Jesus. In a culture that declares Caesar is Lord, you have broken the law and have said Jesus is Lord. You have pledged your allegiance to not some earthly king, but to the cosmic king of the universe. And because you wouldn't be quiet... You wouldn't be silenced. You've been separated from your loved ones. You've been placed in a prison cell. You've been removed from all comfort. You've been removed from all convenience. And again, you've been removed from all of your loved ones, all your family, and you're in prison. Now, uh, Paul in this situation has this expectation that he's going to be delivered from prison. Remember last week? Paul says, it's according to my earnest expectation and hope. I'm banking on the fact that God is able to and God will deliver me from this dungy dungeon. Dingy dungeon. Grimy prison, right? Paul's like, I'm getting out. I'm going to be released. But there's also, with that expectation and confidence, there's a bit of uncertainty knowing that God ultimately holds the future. It's very possible That according to God's plans and will, that Paul, he doesn't make it out of this prison cell. He doesn't ever see his loved ones again. He's not delivered. And to that, what does Paul say? He goes, it's all right, though, because to die is, he says it's to gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But imagine, again, you're in that situation. You're in prison. You're separated from your loved ones. And here's what you get. You get one shot, as Marshall Mathers would say, one opportunity, okay, for a Marshall Mathers, he's a 21st century philosopher. Um, 
You get one opportunity, one more chance. Here's what you get to do. You get to give to your loved ones your potential last words. Imagine that. You don't know if you're ever going to see them again. Uh, and you don't have, remember, you don't have email. You don't have Twitter, Snapchat, Facebook. You don't have the, the TikTok. You don't have the, the TikTok. Okay, I'm 33 almost. You don't, you don't have modern communication. You don't have text. Um, you don't have a phone call. You don't have FaceTime. What you have is a letter. Here's what I'd ask you. What do you say? What are your last words to your loved ones? What's the thing that you would leave them with? Um, now, not everyone gets the chance to formulate what their last words will be. That's really up to what the Lord has for us. He's fashioned all of our days. But here, the Apostle Paul, he's in, he's in this uh, Philippian prison, or this rather Roman prison, and writing to the Philippians, he has a chance here to say what could be potentially his final words to this church that is really his loved ones. This is not just another letter to another church. This is a church that in chapter 4 Paul calls his, his joy and his crown. It's like familial, parental, fatherly language. Um, and essentially that's what we have here, not just with the book of Philippians, but that's actually what we have here in the verses that we just read. Did you notice as we read this section, Paul says, whether I'm absent or present, I'm not sure if I'm going to see you again, but he uses this phrase, he uses this rather word. He says, only, now we have to stop there. Here's Paul's potential last words to this church. The word only there, it can sometimes get lost, a lot of the Greek can get lost in the English translation, uh, but this is an interesting word. Uh, this word only, to only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ I got some Greek words for you this morning, all right? This word only in the Greek is manon, manon. And it means the one thing above all things. Some of your translations might say above all, or here's the central thing. That's essentially what Paul is saying here in these verses that we just read. It's part of why I felt like it was so important for us not just to rush on to chapter 2, but to really park here in verses 27 through 30 for a minute. Because many scholars look on at these verses here as Paul's almost main thesis to the book of Philippians. It's almost uh, like this is the microcosm, these verses, of Philippians as a whole. In other words, it's Paul's main idea. Like all of the four chapters are going to be found here in what Paul's like, this is the main thing above all things. These statements that we just read there are Paul's last potential words to this church, and he's centralizing all of his comments into this uh, even... The way he's saying it is really interesting. It, it even matches the grid of, of that culture's form of rhetoric, a, a way of persuasion, a way to get someone on your side. Uh, it was actually that, that form of communication and influence and, and persuasion was mandated by Caesar at the time to be taught in all the schools. And so Paul's learned in the modern uh, form of rhetoric and communication. And if you were to even take the book of Philippians and like place it upon the, the cultural, the, the, the academic form of, of rhetoric, what you'd find is these verses here, uh, they would be categorized under what's called the propositio. Now, where do, what word do we get from propositio? Proposition, right? That's what this is. This is Paul's main proposition. This is the final thing that he potentially has to say. Uh, the New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says that this section of scripture right here, this propositio from Paul, this summary of his sermon, it is the interpretive key to the whole book of Philippians. So then what is it? What is the proposition Paul makes? What's the summary of his sermon? What's the thesis of this book? Paul may never see this church again, and here is what he wants them to know. He says, only, here's his encouragement, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, so this is more than just, hey, if you had one last thing to, uh, uh, you know, to say to your loved ones, what would you say? This is like, what would you say if you only had a few characters? Like if you could like tweet it, right? How many characters is that? 140 or something? Maybe it's gotten more. I'm going to stop trying to referencing social media like I know what I'm talking about there. But it, it's, it's a final sentence either, even. And Paul's final sentence is this powerful exhortation to only 
Let your conduct, this is what he wants to say to the church, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Um, we probably should use some interpretation here because that can mean all sorts of wrong things if we don't interpret it correctly. I mean, what, what, what is this saying? Let my conduct, which we might understand that word simply, right? Our behavior, uh, some translations say our manner of life, be worthy of the gospel? Wait, I have to be worthy of the gospel? Like, I need to become a worthy individual that's able to receive the salvation? I got to receive the good news of Jesus in a worthy way? And, of course, the answer to that is no. That's not the gospel. The message of the gospel is not become worthy enough for God to love you, right? Become worthy enough for God to save you. It's, it's actually the exact opposite, right? We are all unworthy. We're all undeserving of God's love and grace. That, that's certainly not what this means. That's, that's not how the gospel works. That's how the world works, right? The way the world works is you've got to be worthy of your wage, got to be worthy of acceptance. you got to be worthy, worthy, worthy. So, so that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying something contrary to everything else he says, which is the good news of Jesus is an announcement over uh, unworthy sinners who get to be saved because of God's love and grace for them, right? So, so he's not saying become worthy to receive it. Uh, got another Greek word. We're just going Greek this morning. My big fat Greek church service, all right? Sorry. That was a horrible joke. Um, the word worthy is a really interesting Greek word that I'm not going to try to pronounce, okay? I just know there's no S at the end of it, but it's, it's that word in Greek, classical Greek. Um, it's like, welcome to Solos. You know, this is the level of education you get here, okay? But the word worthy here is really interesting. Here's what Paul's saying. The word worthy there is to weigh the same. This is really significant, worthy, to weigh the same. So let's, let's again think then about this verse. And what Paul is saying, only let your conduct, listen to this, weigh the same as the gospel of Jesus. The main thing above all, the central thing I want to leave you with is to ensure that your manner of life weighs the same as the gospel you're preaching. Isn't that an incredible statement? Think about what Paul is saying here. Paul, Paul already at this point has been on and on about the gospel, the good news, the announcement that the crucified Messiah is the risen king of the universe. And Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And every knee, Paul will say in chapter 2, will bow, not to Caesar, but to Jesus. Paul's been on and on about furthering that gospel. We're going to talk in a second about how the church is called to further that gospel. But Paul's warning us against a kind of imbalance in our lives to where what we're preaching is not being displayed in how we're living. There's an imbalance. The way that we're living doesn't weigh the same as what we're saying. There's an inconsistency there. There's an imbalance there. Paul says, make sure, again, that the manner of your life, the way that you're living, is preaching the same gospel that your mouth is. That your life would weigh the same as the gospel you proclaim. Um, what a great encouragement for all of us. I love the gospel. Uh, it is the power of God into salvation. It is the hope for humanity. It is the good news that God loves me right where I am. I don't got to perform and worthy my way into his faithfulness. But Paul is saying, that's great, but love the gospel enough to allow it to transform you. Allow it to inform and transform every part of you. So here would be a good example of this. So uh, if we want to balance here, if we want our life to weigh the same as the gospel, here, here's what that would look like. So if we, for example, preach a gospel of liberty, that Christ has come to set the captives free, we ought to then walk in the liberty of the gospel. We ought to walk in freedom. We ought to walk in holiness. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 5, not to be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Whether that's the bondage of legalism that we can fall into or the bondage of sinful rebellion, we preach a gospel of liberty. We say Jesus has come to set sinners free. So if we're going to preach that, let's make sure our lives weigh the same. Let's walk in freedom and holiness. If we're going to preach a gospel of God's love, I think now more than ever, it's time for the church to actually walk in love. 
to walk in, how about this, kindness and compassion. I think we need to do a 10-part sermon series on kindness. What's that, right? The kindness of God which leads a man to repentance. The characteristic of love in Romans 13, love is kind. So if we preach a God who's kind to sinners in his grace and mercy, ought we or shouldn't we then walk in kindness and compassion? If we preach a gospel of hope, we ought to walk in confidence and courage. Preaching hope all day long, but then having absolute meltdowns on social media when our circumstances don't pan out the way that they do, where's our hope, right? It's a gospel of hope. Is there an imbalance? It's a great question to ask ourselves with, with our own lives. Where is there an imbalance between the gospel you're proclaiming and believing in and the life that you're living? How about this last one? Is if we're going to proclaim a gospel of grace, that God gives unmerited and unending and undeserved favor to people who don't deserve it in his grace and forgiveness, shouldn't we then also walk in forgiveness and mercy? Okay, we get the idea, right? Paul is saying, only let the life you're living, here's the big idea, church, this is so important. It's like, Paul's got one last thing to say to the church, and it's like, this is Paul's last potential words to Christians. He says, make sure that the gospel is not just something you're preaching, make sure it's transforming every part of you so that it's actually something that would, would persuade a non-believer, right? right? I, I can't hear what you're saying, I'm too busy watching you do the opposite. So, so what a great exhortation, letting our conduct be worthy of the gospel, allowing our life to weigh the same as the gospel that we proclaim. But here's what I love as we get into some more Greek, okay? It's so much more here. The word there, conduct, is so much more than just our behavior, right? Um, I haven't done my job at all if all that you get when you walk out of church every Sunday is behave better. I've got to behave like this or something? Anyway, behave, right? Got to behave. Got to be on my best behavior for Jesus. No, that's, that's not what Paul is getting at. It's so much better than that, okay? It, it's so much deeper than that. Uh, the word here, this, is, um, th this passage of scripture has had like, as much scholarly work done on it than entire books of the Bible. It's really interesting as I was researching this. Uh, the word here uh, that's used in the Greek, the word here for conduct, in your Bible it might be manner of life. Only let your manner of life, your conduct, be worthy of the gospel. Let your life weigh the same as what you're preaching. It's the Greek word, I got this one, okay? Politumio. You can't fact check me because you don't speak Greek, so I can just make it up, right? <laughs> Politumio, Okay. I went on Blue Letter Bible, and they actually pronounce it for you. You never saw that? Great feature. You can sound smart. All right? Now, does anybody want to take a guess at what words we get from politumeo? Politics. Uh, the word polis literally means city. Paul is literally saying, he's not saying behave like the gospel, you know, has changed you. He, he's intentionally using a verb. A verb form of this idea to live as a citizen. Let your life, he's saying literally, let your life as a citizen reflect the truth of the gospel. Now, to us, though we might rejoice in and enjoy our citizenship here in the United States of America, this still might not resonate as much for us as it would have for the Philippians. They knew what Paul was getting at by using this verb because they were in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. And the highest privilege of life in Philippi was Roman citizenship. Roman citizenship. Yeah, I'm a Philippian, but I'm a Roman citizen. So here's a good question. Okay, then is that what, you know, that's what it was in that culture. By the way, everything in that culture was about your citizenship like the benefits that you got when you bowed your knee to Caesar. It's amazing how you could cash in on that, what you could cash in with. The tax benefits were awesome. You know, like just you get the house you want with the landscaping you want in the, in the corner that you want in Philippi because you've bowed your knee to Rome and you're a citizen. Uh, everyone knew that there was great perks to citizenship. Everyone also knew that there were great consequences to 
um, having some allegiance to, say, Jesus over Rome. That's why Paul, for example, was in prison at this time. But, but they understood this language. So, so then what is Paul saying? Paul Is Paul saying, okay, um, you're in Philippi, and I want you to live as a Roman citizen in Philippi in a way that's worthy of the gospel? Is that what Paul is saying? No, of course he's not saying that. The Christians knew the play on words that, that Paul was doing. Paul was speaking with what's called in hip-hop a double entendre. Saying two things at once, right? Paul is speaking certainly about... That's not just hip-hop. I know that, okay? Paul is speaking... I've got two hip-hop references already, all right? Paul is speaking to the dual citizenship that they have that's both in Philippi as a Roman citizen, but ultimately it's going to be what he emphasizes in chapter 3, verse 20, where he says our citizenship is in heaven. We're heavenly citizens, We've got dual citizenship. What a cool way to think about this. We are in Philippi as Romans, but we're also in Philippi as Christians. We're here in Philippi as citizens of Rome, but we're here in Philippi with a citizenship that's a reality to the parity of Rome. Our citizenship in heaven is eternal. The king of the kingdom of our citizenship is king forever. We're citizens of heaven. We're dual citizens. That's why I believe the NLT translates this verse, I think, accurately. This is pretty much everything I just said to you in a better translation. Okay, here's what it is. NLT says, above all, the one main central thing, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Jesus. That, that, that's what Paul is getting at here. Now, Again, Paul, um, Paul was a smart guy. Like, um, i got to be careful how I say this, but coming from my tradition, there was always a lot of emphasis, and, I, and I'm thankful for this because this applies to me in a helpful way, but there can be a lot of emphasis in the world of ministry, in the world of influence, in the world of the church on how, like, God uses people that haven't gone to school. Like, God doesn't need your education to use you, and that's a great point. But what that can kind of do is create this knee-jerk reaction that's sort of, um, what's the word? Well, we kind of demonize academics a little bit, and we kind of say, like, you know, well, if you are smart, like, God can't use you. It's like, what do you, where'd you get that? Like, we know verses, even though we know verses in Proverbs that say, like, get wisdom, get knowledge, get understanding. Like, you don't need an interpreter to hear that. Like, get smarter. Like, <laughs> that's what the Bible says, right? Uh, and, and so I think sometimes we can so focus on people like Peter and Andrew um, and Andrew and James who didn't have a formal education. We're like, God can use the foolish of the world to put to shame the wise. But then you have a guy like Paul where it's like nothing's wasted. Like God is going to do whatever he wants through who, whoever he wants. He loves weakness to display his power. But God also loves an intellect. God loves an academic. God loves a guy like Paul that trained under the, the highest uh, order of, of, of Jewish studies under, under the rabbi Gamaliel. This is a classically trained uh, genius. Paul, Paul's brilliant. And so as he's writing this, it's just you see his creative intellect coming through, bleeding through as the Spirit is inspiring him to, to communicate this incredible point about how to live as a citizen of heaven in a context where citizenship is everything. Now, to kind of unpack this a little further, I think this is really interesting. You know, um, Philippi was called, I think it was self-named, but it was called Little Rome, right? Uh, and the idea there, as a Roman colony, it was in Greece. Philippi's in Greece, but it was called Little Rome. Like, some people come to Boca, and they're like, oh, it's like little, the sixth borough of New York, you know? There used to be a Junior's Cheesecake in Meisner, you know? down but um but that's philippi so it's a little rome the idea there is this listen so this kind of unpacks what paul is saying a little bit more the idea there is is that if you were to visit philippi a greek city here's what's amazing you would go there and you would be reminded of rome like this is like a little rome in here what's paul saying Paul's saying in the same way you are citizens of heaven. The church, like Philippi, is a colony, an outpost of heaven. 
the heart and the hope, Paul says, is so much so that when someone comes into your colony, here we are in our colony, he says, they should be reminded of heaven. There's something about your citizenship that makes them go, just like going to Philippi, think of Rome, they come to church and they think of heaven. They, they, they go to work with you and they think of heaven. Isn't that a beautiful call? Now, I, I think this is really practical for us, uh, and this makes a lot of sense. I don't know about you, but I know for me, I can t- you can tell a lot about someone's cultural background and even their citizenship based on their conduct, can't you? Like, you, you know where they're from. Like, if you, you could be in another part of the country, and just the way that someone doesn't let you merge into their lane, you're like, oh, you're from Boca. I know you. And then there's that Florida plate, right? Just comes, or probably like, maybe it's like Canada or something. But um, you can just tell. I mean, if, if you talk to my dad, for example, you talk to him, you, sp- you just know he's from California. It's just obvious. You just spend a minute, just kidding. He's got a Brooklyn accent. It's pretty strong. Um, but there's just something about that. I mean, just recently, we had, uh, had to get some help at our house from a service, and they came over and and um, I, just, I just knew, you know, the Caribbean islands are so distinct, and, and there's many of them, but I lived in the Bahamas long enough to know that this guy's accent, it was distinctly Bahamian. I said, are you Bahamian? He said, yeah, boy. I said, everything good, boy. All right, we had a nice Bahamian conversation. I brought out my Bahamian dialect. But there's just something evidential about a life that shows citizenship. And so this is what... The thesis of the entire book of Philippians is uh, this idea that there, there's a way to live our lives in such a way as citizens of heaven that, that weighs the same as, as the gospel that we're preaching, that leads people to go, what's different about you? You remind me of somewhere. You remind me of someone, and that's heaven. Now, uh, that's, that's part one. Part two. The next question is how? There, there's two parts to this whole thing, just so you know, in case you're wondering. How many parts are there? Two total. Part one's done. Part two's started. How is the next question. We see Paul express the what. The what is that we are called to live as citizens of heaven, conducting ourselves in a manner that weighs the same as the gospel we're preaching. But how do we do that? Now, it's interesting. The how that Paul gives here is by standing. This is how we conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel. It's in the way that you stand. Remember the title of the message? The stance of a citizen. It's all coming together now, right? Here it comes, all right? Full circle. We're almost there. The stance of a citizen. That's what Paul begins to unpack. Uh, the way that people can identify you is how you stand in life. What you stand on. What you stand for. There's something about the way that you stand that people can identify your citizenship with. And I've also found this to be true, how I can, I, people I know really well, I can identify them, even from a distance. Have you noticed this? Like, I can identify people I know really well, usually by three things. The way that they walk, I'll be like, there they are. I see them 100 yards away, walking. Who is that? I know them. Do you see them? I see their walk, all right? By the way that they sit, don't get too self-conscious. I'm watching you all sit right now. Don't worry, all right? Like, my wife, the way that she's able to like, she does these things where it's like a, a gift. Like, she doesn't just sit. She, like, contorts. Like, I'm like, how did your leg go there? Like, so just by seeing the way she sits, I'm like, that's Brittany. Her sisters are laughing. It's true. Um, and lastly, the way that someone stands. There's even something about the way that you stand that people can identify. There's something to the way that you stand. Um, for example, in my house, you'll, you'll be able to identify a Lundy um, if their, um, their stance is usually they have food in, on their plate or in their hands. We don't like, anybody else like this? We don't really do the whole sitting down to eat. No, I mean, like as a family we do. But if there's food on the island and we're, and we're there and it's Sunday, like Sunday after church food, isn't it the best? Oh, I shouldn't have told you that right now. But like, you know, there's that post-church and we're, we, we, we stand up eating. My dad always makes the comments like, here they are, the standing Lundies. Here they are eating everything, Thanksgiving dinner. Like here we are just standing up eating. There's something about your citizenship just through the way that you stand. And there's a couple things that, that Paul unpacks with this. He, he gives here, as we continue through this passage, notice these three things that Paul says uh, kind of make up the way that a citizen of heaven should stand in life. He says first that, that a citizen of heaven should stand firm in their faith. Stand firm in their faith. 
Stand firm in the faith. He says there in verse 27, it's the same scripture about standing firm in the faith. He says in verse 27, he says that you stand fast. I'm all messed up here. There it is. That you stand fast in one spirit. What an interesting word there. Stand fast. That's the first thing Paul encourages them to stand like in a a firm way. Uh, The Greek word there for stand fast is the word stako. Stako, and it literally means to firmly hold in position. It's a military term. The idea there is that as a citizen of heaven in a secular culture, hold your place. Don't compromise. Don't move from your position. Stay standing. Remain standing. Stay in that position. That's the idea. And this isn't the only time that Paul uses this encouragement and this exhortation. We see him also in Chapter 4 of this same book saying, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, he says, so stand fast in the Lord. So Paul is unpacking how we live as citizens of heaven. He goes, the first way is you've got to remain firm in your faith. And the idea there is because there are currents, currents of culture, currents of, let's say, your own tendency, there are even currents of, of um, spiritual forces that are seeking to move you from your place. And we've all been there, haven't we? We've all been moved from a firm standing at one point or another. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a need for these kind of exhortations in Scripture, right? But we're called to stand firm because we know there's a tendency to waver, isn't there? And instead of being a citizen of heaven in the culture, I start to be conformed to the culture rather than standing firm, standing firm. Now, I mentioned three specific currents that we have to watch out for. This is what you'll see as a theme throughout Scripture. Uh, these currents of culture, these currents of human tendency, and these currents of spiritual forces, these, these are, are, are always at play in our lives at all times. At any given moment, our faith is vulnerable to being shifted away from the gospel, to being shifted away from the way of God because of the current of the world where culture is going, in every form and fashion, by the way. Like, there's not some political party that makes you, like, as long as you're in that, you're safe, okay? Every and any form of cultural flow, there's always this tendency because, remember, uh, scripture says that, that the world, it's, it's under the prince of the air. There's a culture, there's a stream, and behind it, there's a force blowing that direction. And then there's also the flesh. You know, the biggest problem with, with uh, the world is that we're in it, you know? That has a lot of implications, too. But my biggest problem with the temptations of the world is that they're also my temptations. You know what I mean? So I'm drawn away by my own desire and enticed by the things in the world. That's... The flesh is current. The flesh is tendency. Think of Paul in Galatians who says, crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Because not only is there an external current of culture that we are mostly consumed by and and being um, um, almost like caught into, but there's also this internal desire to go after it. This internal longing to love the things of the world. And, And Paul says about the flesh... That the flesh is contrary to the spirit. So stand fast against the world and the current of the world. This doesn't mean get your pitchfork and your, your torch and go protest the people of the world. When, when, Paul, when John says, do not love the world, he's not talking about the people, you know, for God so love the world. Not those people, right? He's talking about the systems of the world. Crucify your flesh and then the devil. Good morning. Welcome to church. The devil. Now, it's a very Western problem that we have to not be able to imagine some sort of evil spiritual force behind all the issues that we're facing in this world. It's very hard for us to do that. Well, C.S. Lewis actually says that there's really two camps, and maybe that's not so true for us. Maybe we're actually not in that camp. We could be in one of two. C.S. Lewis says when it comes to spiritual warfare and um, the enemy and the devil, in the church today, he says you tend to either have the materialist or the magician. You ever heard this? The materialist is the person that 
Um, they, they actually won't even use the word evil because it constitutes some kind of moral absolute, right? Um, so we don't use that word. There's no spiritual force. There's just dysfunction. There's social issues. You know, usually the problem with, with um, bad things in the world, maybe they'll say bad things, is bad educational factors, right? The problem is a lack of education. And the only thing that is wrong with that is this thing called Nazi Germany. Pretty educated society. Pretty evil. Right? So that's the materialist. Like the materialist like, won't attribute anything to some sort of spiritual force unless like somebody's convulsing. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that might be spiritual. Is that green coming out of her mouth? You know what I mean? Like she, she's walking this way. You know, like, okay, that's spiritual. That's the materialist. The materialist is, is lost in this idea that it's all, you know, all that there is is what we see. But then on the other hand, you have this other extreme with, with spiritual warfare, which is um, C.S. Lewis calls it the magician. Ooh, magic, right? The materialist is like, no, ain't no spiritual warfare. The magician is like, gets caught off in traffic. It's like, that's the devil just cut me off. The devil just cut me off. I saw him, right? Like, that's how it can be. Where everything's spiritual warfare, everything. It's like, well, I know, like, you're discouraged and you're cranky. Like, man, spiritual warfare. It's like, well, when's the last time you took a nap? Right? When's the last time you had a Snickers? Yeah, like... First Timothy, Paul's, T- Timothy has like a stomach issue. Paul's not like, it's the devil. He's like, just drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. You'll get better. Right? Prescribes it like, here's a natural solution. <laughs> and, and so you have these extremes. And, and, and Paul doesn't seem to have these problems, does he? Paul seems very content to understand that there is both natural factors at play, but behind it there are these spiritual forces there's a puppeteer, so to speak. There is a, a war that we're facing. And it's interesting. We know Ephesians 6, right? All that I'm saying is summarized here where Paul says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers. Now, the idea, the idea there is, is not that we don't ever wrestle against flesh and blood forms of evil, because I don't know about you, but sometimes I wrestle against myself. You know what I mean? What he's saying is that that's not ultimately what we're wrestling against. There's a spiritual battle. There's principalities. There's powers. There's rules of the darkness of this age. There's spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Notice this. Therefore, notice what he says, take up the whole armor of God. I want you to notice this, that you may be able to what? Withstand in the evil day. And he says it twice. So nice how to say it twice. And having done all, to stand. What's the objective in spiritual warfare? Standing firm. Keeping your ground. Not moving your position. Let me ask you, have you moved your position? The good news of the gospel is you can just come right back. Isn't that good? Come right back to Jesus. He's your rock. He's your salvation. If he's your trust, you'll never be moved. But, but that's what Paul's calling us to do as citizens of heaven in a secular culture with human tendencies, with a spiritual enemy, he says, stand. Now, what are some things that we stand in? Write these down. Here's some things that we can tend to be drawn away from. But we need to stand in God's grace. We need to stand in God's truth. We need to stand and stand firm in God's way. This is often where the enemy is leading us away from, Right? God's grace, probably first and foremost here. Like if you just look at the, at the first temptation of spiritual warfare in the garden, our first parents, the first thing that they were tempted away from was the goodness of God, right? The generosity of God. The way that the, the, the serpent whispered in their ear was to think that they didn't have enough, right? They hadn't yet heard, third hip-hop reference, they hadn't yet heard the Kanye West song that says, we have everything we need. What if Eve made apple juice? You going to do what Adam do? Or say, baby, let's put this back on the tree because we got everything we need. Thank you, Kanye. That's what, that was their first temptation, to, to not believe that, that God's grace was enough. That was the first temptation, that God was good, and he had blessed them, and he had been generous to them. So they, so they shifted away from that. And we, too, can I tell you, this is probably the, not just the daily, even the the hourly, this is the second to second fight that we face 
being firm in our identity, being in grace. Because, listen, here's where this usually goes. Either we're performing well and our identity then goes to pride. Oh, I'm actually, I mean, grace is good, but God, have you seen me, right? Or, or, or we're falling short and then we move away from grace into shame. Stand firm in the grace. Paul says in Romans 5 that it's in this grace that you stand. At the end of the day, our standing is in grace, right? When we stand before God, we're not standing before him as Christians in our performance. We're standing in Jesus. We stand in grace before God. Stand firm in grace. Stand firm in God's truth, man. In God's word. Stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Paul says we're striving, standing firm in the faith of the gospel. You look at Adam and Eve, the second temptation was to disregard and disbelieve what God had said. Is that really true? Did God really say that? Here's the big one. Does the Bible really mean that? I know we have centuries of scholarly support and interpretation to hold up orthodox doctrine. But maybe we have the interpretation that no one else has had before. The church has been waiting 2,000 years for us to see this verse this way, right? And, and this is where a lot of, um, um, I, I would say it's a lot of where our culture is going because it's a lot of where the church is going. We, we love to point to the government with what's wrong in, in America. But Jesus didn't say that with the government, the gates of hell would not prevail against the human government. Did he say that? No, the church was called to be the force of influence in culture. And, and I fear that a lot of what's wrong with our country is, is really a, a lack of a lot of us to say that judgment begins in the house of God. And God, where are we compromising? God, where are we watering down your truth? Where are we making your gospel something that it's not? Stand firm in the truth. Um, I, I don't know if you're noticing this. It's getting harder and harder to do that. It's going to become a lot more common uh, to be labeled for doing that. It'll become, I think, I pray, I pray not, but I think more and more we'll see legislation that will make it um, illegal. Illegal in the United States of America to stand in God's truth. But we must do it. Uh, because all flesh is grass, um, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. We've got to stand in God's way. Um, th this is also another call in scripture, not to move to the right or the left, but, you know, standing firm is not just in, in, in what you receive and in what you believe, it's in the way of your life. So are you on a firm foundation, on a firm course? Are you on the narrow path? This is so much of temptation, so much of the, the fight that we're in is to really do our best in, in pursuing Christ, not to turn from the right or the left, to stay the course. Like, I don't know, the, the, the longer I'm serving Jesus in ministry and seeing people, like, fall right and left and, you know, heroes of the faith that weren't heroes in, in private, you know. Like, I just, I just really think the most miraculous thing that you can do in this culture as a Christian is just stay the course. There's just something about just be firm in your faith and don't move. And it's not, it's not that complicated. Like, I'm not that smart. It's okay. Just stand firm in what you know. And I don't know, that's kind of like my life goal. My life goal is not for a church to get to a certain number. Uh, my life goal is to say, like, Paul, I finished the race. That's my life goal. My life goal is to remain standing, right? Shouldn't that be all of our life goal? Listen, yeah, we know pastors are called to a higher standard, but we're all called to stand firm. That should be for all of us. Paul calls on the church to stand firm in God's grace. But it's more than that. He also calls the church to stand together in the fight. So stand firm in the faith. But he says that you're going to stand firm. You need to stand firm, striving together in one spirit for the faith of the gospel. This is a really interesting point that Paul makes here about how we're called to stand firm. We're called to, to do it together. Okay. He said it. I just read it, but we'll say it again there. That you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together, there's our key word, for the faith of the gospel. Uh, the word there, striving together, means to struggle along together. I love that. All right. Uh, this implies the fact 
that uh, the Christian life, and we've already alluded to this, but it's, it's not a breeze. Um, why, why do so few find the way that leads to life? What did Jesus say? Because it's difficult. It's a difficult way. It's not always a smooth path. Um, we, we struggle to the finish line. It's a struggle. Welcome to the struggle. Uh, but Paul's saying we got to struggle along together. That's the big idea here. And it's really a beautiful uh, kind of compliment, too, to spiritual warfare because I, I kind of think of in this passage, as Paul is talking about this fight and the struggle, there's, there's two kinds of fighting that we're doing together. Uh, there's first a fight that we do together that's defensively against some things. We, we have an enemy. We just talked about that. And he's an enemy that, like, I know that the spiritual forces that are out there, can I just, this is really important. This is as theological as we need to get today. I know the spiritual forces out there are, um, are a lousy opponent of God, right? Because they don't compare. They don't compete. No one competes with God. We know the end of the story. You know what I'm saying? What's the saying? I love it. It's like, should be a bumper sticker. It probably is. But like, when Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Good one. Tweet that. All right. The TikTok it. All right. Um, right. And, and this is true. Like, I want you to know this. This is true. Be encouraged. The spiritual forces at play are not stronger than God, but they're stronger than you alone. You don't have what it takes on your own to struggle to the finish line. You can put up a fight, but you won't win on your own. You won't. You can't. You weren't meant to. Not just from the created order, but from the new created order in Christ through his church. We're called to struggle along together. In fact, when you read in Ephesians 6, you know, Ephesians 6, standing against the spiritual forces, standing firm. And what is Paul, what's the practices? He says, you got to put on the armor, Right? You know, prayer, all these things that we are all well-versed in. And maybe you're like right now, you're struggling to succeed and stand firm, but you're wondering why, because you're doing all the armor. You're like, I'm wearing it. I'm praying. I've got the gospel. I've got, the, got the, the, the helmet of salvation. I've got the breastplate of righteousness. Like, what's missing? Um, community. Vulnerability. Confession of sin, boasting in your weakness, dependence on God's people. You know, it's interesting when you read about the armor of God, there, there is the breastplate of righteousness, but I don't go through Ephesians 6 on your own, go through the Greek, comb through it. You know what you won't find? You won't find the backplate of self reliance. Head to toe, front and back. No, head to toe, but not front and back. And that was a custom. The Romans understood this, that with their armor, that they were armed on the front because, as corny as this sound, because every soldier had the other soldier's back. That's the idea. You only survive because you're fighting shoulder to shoulder. Here's a question I'd ask you as you're fighting defensively against forces that are stronger than you. Now, you're strong in Christ and in community. Don't hear me say that wrong. But vulnerable and alone, you're not strong enough. Not strong enough. Here's a question I'd ask you. Who has your back? Who has your back? Um, when the attacks of the enemy come, uh, attacks of temptation, when the lies come, when shame comes, when discouragement comes, when distractions seep in, who has your back? And if you go, I do. No, you don't. <laughs> Here's a better question. Whose back are you watching? Whose back do you have? We've kind of been on this kick, I feel like, as a church, getting into our third year, where a lot of us, we come into a new church, and we're like, okay, what does Solas have for me, right? Like, what can I get? How, you know, this new church, okay, here I am. Like, let's see. Let's see, I'm shopping, all right? What do you, and, I, and here's where God's been taking us. I've been sensing this. I've been seeing this as a community. Um, it's not so much what, what can Solas give me, but Solas is a community of people that I'm called to serve. And there is ministry that we receive in that. But there's something about a posture that says, I'm not going to wait for someone to pursue friendship with me. I'm going to pursue friendship with them. 
I'm going to actually be intentional in my faith. And there's something about going, whose back do you have? We know Ecclesiastes says that two are better than one. We have Solomon even agreeing with this. Because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up again. If, uh, up again, rather, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, there's our principle, right? Two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Stand together in the fight, defensively against forces which are stronger than you are alone, but not stronger than God, and not stronger than God's people, rooted in community, watching each other's backs. Amen? And then there's this point also here about what we're fighting, not just defensively against, but offensively for. Paul says that we are striving together. We're standing together, striving together. I love this, for the faith of the gospel. Like, let's kind of take a different uh, perspective of this to understand what Paul is saying. The Christian life is not 100% a defensive activity. Playing defense. Defense wins championships. It's really important, okay? But we have an offensive calling. We have an advancement, a furtherance collective mission. And so Paul says we need to stand together not just to fight against, but ultimately as the church we're called to fight for some things. And there's no way that a divided church can bring any hope to a divided world. That's our ultimate mission is the idea there. It's the way that we, with all of our differences, with all of our opinions, like, and we've, we've, we got them. We got them. We have our opinions. And in today's culture, we can read more. So we have opinions about everything. It's like, is that, is that a topic now? That's an opinion. Oh, I got to find an opinion about that. You ever felt like that? Like, I don't have an opinion about that. Yeah, I got to get an opinion. Opinion. Everything's an opinion. Do I have an opinion? Need an opinion. What's my opinion? What do I think? What do I think? What do I think? And everything becomes combative. And everything becomes central. So are you, are you mask or no mask? Oh, you're no mask. <laughs> oh, you're mask. <laughs> it's both ways. <laughs> vaccine or no vaccine. Let's move on, okay? Right? On and on and on and on and on and on it goes. You have these different opinions that, listen, they matter. They matter. Have at it. Pursue Jesus in the culture you're in. Seek righteousness, seek justice, seek truth. But Paul says that we are to strive together with one mind. How can a church with so many opinions have one mind? Well, the way that they have one mind is they keep the main thing the main thing. They make sure that the furtherance of the gospel is the central thing uniting them. Not secondary things that may divide them. Now, today, the problem with that is we may disagree over what should divide us and what is secondary, and with that, we just kind of have to let the chips fall where they may, but I know that here at Solus, I just want to say that our primary purpose is to advance the gospel. It's the furtherance of the good news that Jesus is alive, and so we got to fight offensively for some things because this is Jesus' vision of the church not caught up, stuck, not advancing the gospel because we're internally having all these thousands of debates about every single topic. Caveat, it's okay, it's okay, we can chat, we can discuss. But there comes a problem when we are missing out on what Jesus promised here, which is that the church is what Jesus is building. He says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I love this promise. I will give you the, to the church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So the way that we say it here at Solace, it's one of our four pillars. We say gospel centrality. The main thing, Stephen Covey says, is to keep the main thing the main thing. Is the proclamation of the fact that Jesus is king. The crucified king, he's the risen king of the universe. Is that your priority? Is that what you're allowing to unite us? And lastly, invite our, our band to come up as we close out here. The last encouragement that Paul gives is to stand strong in the face of opposition. To stand firm in the fight, to stand, or stand firm in the faith, to stand together in the fight, and lastly, to stand strong in the face of opposition. Notice what he says here, these final verses. He says, make sure that as you're standing firm, I love this, this encouragement, 
don't be in any way, he says, terrified by your adversaries. He says, which is to them a proof of perdition. Their opposition against you, uh, to them, it might be proof of their success. But Paul says that when you as a Christian are striving for righteousness and you're persecuted for it, and whether you're imprisoned or, or ridiculed or canceled, those that might think they're winning on the right side of history are previewing their own damnation. That's what Paul's saying. It's a preview. He says, but to you, notice this, that opposition you're facing is proof of your salvation. Isn't that awesome? I'm facing adversity in life. Maybe this isn't what God has called me to do. Why? Because there's challenges and there's cultural opposition. Maybe that's a sign that you're doing the right thing. Right? What's the story in Acts where you have those men that, that go up to the, the demon-possessed girl and, or the demon-possessed man and they, they try to like use the name of Jesus? Let's use the name of Jesus to, we can kind of like use it like a hocus-pocus abracadabra word. And see if we can use, we don't really know him or walk with him or, or ever really used by him, but let's use his name to see if we can deliver this demon-possessed man. And the demon, they try it, and the demon goes, I've heard of Paul. Who are you? What a sad thing to hear, right? Like, imagine being so bland in your faith that there isn't this sense of which you're a threat to darkness. Like, I, I want people, to, I, want, I want this to be true. I want us as a church to be those that, that the enemy looks on and he goes, I, I know them, uh-oh, right? Not, who are you? No, no, that, that opposition that we face, it's evidence of our salvation. Here's what Paul says. We gotta stand strong. Stand strong in the face of this opposition. He says, don't be terrified. The word terrified literally means it's a picture of a horse getting skittish. It's like, it's like Cooper, my golden retriever. If I walk within like two feet of him, he's like, that goes crazy. I'm like, dude, it's okay. Especially at night, like trying to walk around and be quiet. He starts breakdancing in the middle of the night in the living room. He gets skittish. Oh, oh. It's like, that doesn't, that's one thing on a golden retriever. It doesn't look good on a Christian, does it? Oh, oh no. What? Opposition. Oh, terrified. Skittish. What's happening? There's the peace of God, right? That settles us there. Stand strong in the face of opposition. Jesus said it best. He said, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. <laughs> but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, God holds eternity in his hand. Don't be afraid of man. What can man do to you? Let's fear God. The stance of a citizen called to conduct themselves worthy of the gospel in a culture that is counter the way of Jesus. Called to stand firm, called to stand together, and we're called to stand strong, even in the face of opposition and persecution. Um, one day, we are going to stand before God. We're going to stand before God. Every single person one day, it's appointed once for man to die and then judgment for everyone. Every single person will stand before God. Here's the question. How will you stand before him? Two options. You stand either as a sinner, an enemy of God who's in your sin, or you stand as a saint, a child of God, forgiven. One of two options. In the end, there's not good people and bad people. There's those who stand before God as his children and those who stand before God as his enemies. The good news of the gospel is that God loves to make his enemies his friends. He gives his own life as a display of love for his enemies, and he calls them into his family. How is it that we can stand before God despite what we've done, the good, the bad, and the ugly? How is it that we, as sinners, can stand before God as his children? And here's how. Through the Son of God, who, listen to this, stood in our place, didn't he? Jesus on the cross, he stood in the place of each one of us. He stood in the gap between us and God. He stood in the position of our sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we could stand as children of God before him.
Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.